0: Start a chat, tell them that Casey sent you. If you have Salesforce Pardot, when you schedule and then do a demo, they will send you a free copy of my book, Marketing Automation Unleashed. Not bad, right? Well, it's only while supplies last, so hop on this thing today. And that's it for sponsors. Let's get to the show. There it is. Woo. Hit, I hit record, and now we are recording. And you know what? I am st- Stoked because I'm coming at you here from Studio B in the coronavirus basement of my home. Um, and my guest today, I am so excited. I have been trying to, to chat with him for a long time. We've just scheduled, we've had to reschedule and rearrange. So I'm really excited to talk to him today. Who is he? What does he do? He's a growth marketer. He's all about growing things, growing your organizations, your companies, a leader, a speaker, an author. And I added, provocateur because he tells it how it is and how do I know this because his website is literally marketingbs.com. Um, and he has a newsletter you need to go there right now I know it's like random in the introduction but seriously go there his newsletter is the only one I enjoy I have unsubscribed from all the other ones sorry Tim Ferriss Literally, Ed, and I'm going to introduce you in a second, his newsletter is the only one I listen to, so go get it. It's like these insights supported by data, funny as hell. Um, He's also the author of Marketing BS, which is an awesome book, and everyone who appreciates the myth-busting on this show will definitely appreciate the book. Previously, the CMO at General Assembly, executive consultant, senior advisor at Warbug Pincus, Ed Novermont. Welcome, sir.
1: Greg, excited to be here. and uh, It feels like it, it took the coronavirus to make this happen. It shut down all of I my did. travel anyway. <laughs> and yeah, now, 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 now I'm stuck here in a, in a you, you might be in your basement, but I'm stuck here in my closet.
0: Yeah, right. Well, here we are. You, know, you, know, you don't have a window in there, do you?
1: There's no window.
0: Yeah, me, me, not here either. We might be insane by the end of this podcast, but <laughs> it'll be good. People will get some great insights out of it. Um, and I almost lost myself in your introduction because there's so much to say. You're, you're so busy. You do so many things. And I and seriously, that newsletter is like fantastic.
1: I'm glad you mind. like it. It, 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 it is the, my, my favorite thing I do every week. Uh, I, I make no money off it. I don't sell anything. I don't advertise in it. Um, I just, uh, uh, I'm passionate about it. I think it's important for people to understand. Uh, I think my, my general belief is that marketing is really, really important. Um, get, getting companies to grow is how we add value to society. And uh, most people are doing it wrong. They're chasing fancy shiny objects and missing the basics yeah and if i can do my little part towards helping people focus on those basics and adding a little more efficiency to the world uh the the, that that little bit of efficiency a little bit of growth like will will continue through the generations and um so that's that's my ambition
0: it's like magic so i'm getting ahead of myself but how we start this show off and i'm so glad to have you here I'm passing you an imaginary Thor's hammer because the real one's at the office. And you know what? And you can't get coronavirus from it. So here you go. Um, it, yeah, it's not plastic. It's metal, which I think is clean after, I don't know, I don't know. <laughs> but hey, take Thor's hammer and smash for me some kind of myth, bogus strategy, BS that you see in marketing and you want to set the record straight once and for all.
1: Yeah, so so Casey, I don't even know how much of these myths are are hundred percent false. It's okay. a matter of prioritizing them. And so many of them, uh, they, they have these great, great expectations of how they're going to blow up and change the world. And many of them are just marginal. Um, I, I'll, I'll start with a quick story. I, I had a, a, a CM, this is like a few years ago. There was a CMO of fortune 500 company who came to me and was asking, how does he integrate his sales technology stack to his marketing technology stack? So that when someone is talking to one of his salespeople and visits the website, he can feed whatever pages they're on directly to a sales team. So a sales team can uh, talk to the right customer at the right time about the right thing based on what they're browsing the website. Yeah. And I said, Hey, that sounds fascinating and interesting. Before we go there, let me ask you a question. When your marketing team sends leads to your sales organization, how long does it take your sales team to call that lead back? Uh-oh. And he had no idea. Yeah. And I said, well, I guarantee that it's not as fast as it should be. If you don't know what that number is, it's not good.
0: Yeah. And, exactly. If you don't know what it is, it, it could be like weeks. <laughs> exactly. If you, if you,
1: any number you're not tracking is not going to be the ideal number. And, 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 and that number is extremely important. And I said, well, before you worry about integrating your technology stacks, why don't we start wow. when they want to talk to you? Uh, right. and, and, and so much of that is, is what I have to think. It's, it's not that integrating the technology stacks is a terrible idea. It's that it's not the greatest idea. Um, and, and we kind of put these fancy ideas first and these simple ideas like calling your customers back when they want to talk to you, th- they get forgotten about. Um, is that,
0: is that cause the complicated stuff seems like it, we mistake it for powerful, like, Oh, it's complicated. I don't know. I don't understand it. I don't know what it is, but I want it. Right. Like you just go after it.
1: That's so, so there's an incentive problem in our industry mm. because vendors The vendors who want to sell you stuff, they don't make money by being good at marketing. They make money by being good at sales, and they make money by being good at customer service. So good sales agents, agencies that are good at sales will get customers. Agencies that are good at customer service will keep customers. Agencies that are good at marketing will get neither of those. Um, And so- (laughs) their job is to meet the needs of the, uh, the the customer says, Hey, I've heard this thing of like social media. Should we be doing that? And the vendor's answer is absolutely. Let me sell you this solution to help you on your social media rather than saying, Hey, here's what's actually going to work and actually going to help because what actually is going to work and actually going to help sometimes doesn't cost that much money. And the customers don't know about, don't care that much about it. Um, I've seen very great agencies been be fired uh, that are doing great marketing be fired because their customer service isn't good. I've never seen a customer, uh, an agency fired when they're, their marketing isn't good, but their customer service is excellent. And so if you're running an agency, where do you invest? Like even if you want to do the right thing, um, all right. the incentives are set up to, for you to invest in sales and customer service rather than marketing improvements. And the same thing happens for, uh, uh, within a company. So if you're a CMO, how do you get a better job and a bigger promotion? It's not by being better at marketing. When I, when I get called to be CMO from Headhunters, the first questions yeah. they ask are, how big was your marketing budget and how big was your team? Nobody was asking how good your marketing was.
0: Really? They don't even... Oh, even recruiters didn't even really care.
1: Uh, um, uh, yeah, well, frankly, it's it's harder to BS those numbers. It's very easy True. to BS when you're talking to a recruiter about how good your marketing is, um, especially when... The companies don't want to give away all their secrets, but it's much harder to BS how big your budget was, and it's much harder to BS how big your, how many, what your headcount was. Right. Uh, and so those are objective third-party numbers that can be double-checked to make sure you're being honest. Um, uh, and so they end up being used as a proxy. But the result is, a CMO, uh, if you want to get ahead and get promoted, you're, you're, the ambitious CMOs try to find ways to increase their budget or increase their headcount. Now, one way to do that is to Uh, sorry, one one way to do that is to to be really good at marketing. Um, That's not the only way. and might not even be the easiest way. A big part of it is like, how do you sell marketing you're doing to your CEO and your CFO? Um, And how do you do that? Well, shiny objects sometimes pay more dividends for most people than, uh, um, uh, shiny objects pay more dividends than doing something simple that works. Um, And again, once you get into big companies, uh, it's really, really hard to move those needles. Uh, yeah. If you're you a small could, you company- take over
0: the SDR team, right? Oh, look, I just added 30 names or I added 20 names to my, my head count. Wow.
1: That's exactly right. And so we have we have these, these huge, huge, huge incentive problems that drive people towards chasing shiny stuff. Um, and then we have the problem with people just liking shiny stuff. Like if you go to a, a at a dinner party, and you talk about what you did in your job, talking about implementing- personalization and technology stack integrations um, and ai and big data is probably more interesting than talking about how you got your call center people to respond to leads in 30 seconds rather than 2 minutes
0: right sexy but it actually it's the fact that you you increase that connect rate you know by 50% like that's going to lead to the most business right there is that little little you know time to action metric. right little metric
1: but way less exciting than like yeah. t- t- advertising on tiktok
0: right geez podcast too even right a podcast that talks all about the sexy marketing would get way more people that's the i've always struggled with that right because it's like you know you know in our shoes we're trying to help people implement pardot and salesforce and and it's the sexy features that often are the ones that bring people to a webinar you know if we did a thing about here's all the sexy features in pardot they're going to show up but if you're like the actual strategy that will lead to more sales, are like, ooh, strategy. Ew. Where's the cool, shiny objects, right? And that's a, that can be a challenge for us. I mean, I'm probably that's guilty true. of the same thing.
1: It's exactly right. It's exactly right. Hey, hey And it's not to say simple doesn't work, right? We're, we're doing this, this call on Zoom. Zoom has very few features, but it just works really, really well. Yes. Um, and so uh, – I'm a big believer in doing the stuff to make your stuff work really well. Now the problem is, is most of Zoom is successful because it's a great product rather than great marketing, um, and so, uh, and a lot of businesses are successful because of great products rather than great marketing. But you need you need pretty good marketing in order to accelerate those great products.
0: Yeah, yeah. In fact, um, you know you're right. It's like the word of mouth just goes, "Hey, my GoToMeeting crapped out on me. How about you? Oh, well, my WebEx died." zoom man try it out right and now everyone's doing it and now their stock's going through the roof all these things so so how i mean how do you how do you get around that how do you as a marketer avoid falling into that pitfall and and then how do you coach people through you know the cult of the shiny object
1: i think i think my my belief is that as individuals we have more control over our lives than 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 not okay. uh and that um, doing the right thing is maybe it's a uh, it's, it's a practically a religious idea but do, do the right thing rather than the expedient thing um, and instead of chasing the shiny objects why don't you try to make your business as successful as possible um, what, what hey one way to do that is to work for smaller companies at smaller companies the the drive to do the 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 effective thing is so much more than the drive to do the expedient thing uh, because if you do the expedient thing the company will fail And if you're at a yeah. small enough company Your success, I talked earlier about, hey, how big was your team and how big was your budget? Um, That's true when you were at a big company. When you want to get your next job after a small company, what's far more important to your career than your team size or your budget was, did the company succeed or not? Uh, And so uh, um, a bad marketer at a successful small company will get a better job than a good marketer at an unsuccessful small company. Right. Um, like and oh, Andrew Chen turned his whole career from being like he, he was uh, the growth marketer at Uber and he's built his whole career on that. Now, was he a good growth marketer? Uh, probably, maybe, I have no idea, but I know he was the growth marketer at Uber and Uber grew really fast. So he uh, he, he gets the credit for that. Uh, and so uh, what, one way to force yourself to be good is just work at smaller companies and bigger companies. The other way is just do the right thing at bigger companies. And uh, if you do those right things, one of two things will, ha- will happen. Either somebody will recognize you for doing the right thing and you'll be you'll be successful. Um, uh, or no one at the company will recognize you for doing the right thing, in which case, like, leave the company and go someplace else and get another job. If your skills are valuable, you'll find another place to go. Uh, if you do the wrong thing, you may also be rewarded in the, within the company. It's highly likely that you will. Uh, but hopefully you have a little, like, dark spot in your stomach somewhere that says like i'm i'm doing the wrong stuff in order to get ahead and like there's lots of books about that about like how to like gorilla your way to the the corner office and yeah i I just hope that there are there are always going to be sociopaths out there and hopefully like i I, i'm trying to speak to the one people that don't want to do that yeah exactly but then the other downside of doing the wrong thing is you can do the wrong thing and it backfires and it doesn't work uh now now you have nothing to hold on to now you've done like the, the morally wrong thing you your career is taking a, a plummet and now trying to move someplace else and tell a story is a lot harder to do right if you move someplace right. else and your story is hey i did the right thing but i wasn't rewarded for within the company get you a good, good next job at a place that you want to be right. if your story People was can i did to the, that I, yeah that's right I, I did the sketchy thing at the company in order to try to get ahead and that backfired well you better make up a really good lie for whatever your next company i is.
0: got caught and then they fired me no no it's like hey we grew this puppy and they just, they weren't recognizing that's one side. People can relate to that. One. You're right. You're right. Wow. So, so using that as a filter, how do you look at things like personalization and technology as a whole? Like what, where, where how, with that filter in place, what are the things we should be looking at?
1: Yeah. So, so per- personalization is a, is a great example. Um, the, the, the one of the greatest personalization companies in the world is Amazon. Uh, they've yeah. done an incredible job with it, and yet uh, if I buy a computer on Amazon, the next thing Amazon recommends I buy is probably another computer, uh, uh-huh. and that's the last thing I need. Right. Uh, I, 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 I saw a series of tweets. It was, it was Someone had bought like a, a, um, a toilet seat cover, and they were like, does Amazon think I collect toilet seats now? Uh, um, and so like, Amazon is the greatest in the world of personalization, and they're not that great And so as a a company that's not Amazon, why are you investing in personalization versus all the other things you could be doing? Because you're not going to be as good as Amazon. Um, There are simple personalization things you can do. So uh, rather than trying to guess what the person wants, asking them what they want tends to be really effective. When we were at general assembly, instead of trying to look at people's purchase history or, or browsing history to figure out what content they were interested in, we just started asking people, do you want information about Web development, or data science, or digital marketing, and then they told us, and we tested what they told us. We tried like not personalizing it after they told us versus personalizing it and just sending the huh. stuff they said they wanted. And it turns out when someone said they want something, they generally respond to the stuff that they said they wanted. Okay. Yeah. Uh, so, so yeah. So if they can opt into what they, what you what what they're interested in, send them what they're interested in. It works great. But trying to guess what they want um, just doesn't work. Yeah. Uh, and the reason why is 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 uh, because something called false positives. Okay. So if you have, there's a famous story out there. I don't know if you heard it, Casey, about uh, Target. It came out in about 2007 or 2008. Um no. And the, the the story. Anytime I talk about personalization, someone wants to bring up the Target story. And the story goes something like this: that there was a man who walked into a Target store, and he was furious. His daughter had been sent some flyer about inferring that she was pregnant. And his daughter was only 16 years old. And how could they do that? That's insulting, blah, 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 blah. And he just screamed out the manager. And the manager apologized, apologized, apologized. Man left. Uh, a couple of days later, the manager called the man back again to apologize again for some reason. And he called the man back. And the man answered the phone and said, no, 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 it's, it's me who needs to apologize. I'm really sorry. Uh, my daughter is pregnant. You guys knew before I did. Uh, oh, and shit. so that was the story in the New York Times. Uh, the... Uh, after it was released within the same day a forbes magazine took that same story and like blew it out and then from there it got picked up everywhere so everyone was talking about the how target knew her the daughter was pregnant before the man how creepy is this these this big data these these retailers are spying on you and monitoring all your purchases and they know more about you than you think you know like it was on fox news it was on like it was covered by the guardian like everywhere um
0: did they ever say how how they knew
1: well, they're using purchase history. Apparently, they're monitoring someone's purchase history, and they could measure. Yeah, yeah the, the, the the pitch was that by monitoring your purchase history, it changes when you're pregnant. I don't know to buy something. Maybe you shift from buying. I don't know what you shift from buying in your second trimester. Sure. But, yeah,
0: uh, maybe she got like it, it, vitamins or something. You know,
1: whatever. Right? You start buying less pads and more tissues or something. Sure. and The algorithm picks up that you're pregnant, and then oh, it spits out these like these special ads directly towards you. Anyways, uh, the New York Times asked Target about it to comment on it, and Target's comment was um, well, effectively, "This is total BS. It's totally inaccurate. Not true. Um, uh, we, we're not going to comment on every single detail." Uh, they said it was not it, true. Oh, Target. Target said it was totally BS. Uh, total they trying BS. to distance <laughs>
0: themselves. Uh,
1: but uh, it, it wasn't true, and, and I'll tell you why it wasn't true. Let's say that within, a, and let's say Target's algorithm was able to predict those pregnant women. Uh, protect women anyway. Women of childbearing age with hundred percent accuracy, um, which is like really impressive to begin with. Let's say they can do That's that. And now let's say they they can they, they also can predict uh, pregnant women with ninety percent accuracy. Now ninety percent accuracy would be ridiculously high. Yeah. Ninety percent accuracy is. Um, Jeez. Well, like first of all, like a uh, uh, a pregnancy test is only about ninety five percent accurate. So so. The, their, their algorithm of looking at purchase behavior let 's say it 's almost as accurate as a as a, as a pregnancy test, um, which would be pretty impressive so you go and do that and you put it towards all these women well within that, that age group of women, maybe two percent of them are actually pregnant in any given year okay. um, when you start saying within a, a trimester so you 're trying to target it within like within a, like a, a third of that you 're looking at less than one percent of people are going to be pregnant within the second trimester which is what target which is what the article Claim target could do predict within right. a trimester. Um, so now so let's let's say they can predict that there's one percent of the women who have, who have that. Uh, if the test is ten percent has ten percent false positives, let's say it gets that one percent, a hundred percent of those one percent, it gets them all. But there's another ninety nine percent of people you're running this test on, and ten percent of those you're going to get wrong because of uh, uh, because of false positives. You, you so of the ninety nine pre people about 10 of them are you're gonna think these guys that they are pregnant when they're not, and because there's so many more of those people than there are the pregnant people, you end up with when the test comes back and says, Hey, these are the people that are pregnant, it gets the one person that's pregnant, but it also gets another nine or ten people that aren't pregnant that your test says is. Uh, and so, uh,
0: oh gee, so you're pissing off more people, you're freaking people out way more than you're helping that one person.
1: Well, it depends what you want to do with that data, right? So, sure, sure. It, Remember, b- before you ran the test, you're, you you knew that one percent of people were pregnant. Yeah. After you ran the test, you have a segment now of that's only ten percent as big, but you know that roughly ten or twelve percent of people in that segment are pregnant. So yeah. you've increased your accuracy from one percent to twelve yeah. percent, which is great. But what do you do with with this group of people that twelve percent of them are pregnant? Well, you certainly don't send them like a, a flyer saying congratulations on your new baby, right? <laughs> like, um which is kind of what they claimed Target did like so if Target was really was really doing that it's amazing that there's only one man across the country who barged in to be like what True. the heck and not right? like,
0: like nine other yeah like that's why thousands. i don't think they
1: actually, I, I, I don't think they did it at all i this, the story is is just that it's a made up story that somebody who was trying to advance their career at target around analytics told this new york times reporter to make himself look good um uh man, there's just BS everywhere. But that, that, that right. one You're story right. now has taken so many people to say, uh, hey, look how great personalization is. I, we, I wanna do, some CEO told into to their CMO and said, I wanna do what Target did. Um, and so they hire someone to go and do what Target did, but nobody sat back and said like, hey, let's look at the numbers. How accurate would this test have to be in order to overpower those false positives? Uh, and, and you'd have to be like 99.99% accurate in order to do anything with this test. Um, right. Now there are again there are ways to do personalization. If if instead you were say you're sending a flyer out to everybody, say Target already had a flyer going out, and as part of that flyer they were advertising prenatal vitamins, and they said, you know what, if there's anyone who's de- we we are hundred percent sure it's not pregnant, let's take out those prenatal vitamins and let's put on a toilet paper in the ad instead. Sure. Well, detecting who's not pregnant is actually fairly really easy, right? Because if again with the ninety five percent accuracy again, there's ninety nine people. Uh, out there, and you find the 1% that aren't, and you get like 95% of them in the right group, um, the 5% of one person out of 100 is, is, is a, a minuscule min- number. And so you can huh. take that this group of people from like 99% of them not being pregnant to like 99.999% of people being pregnant. And so you can do that. Um, uh, but again, it's a it's an impact that you can have on the margin. It's a small thing you can do to. Marginally improve your business. It's not this wonder drug that will then be able to tell you, indicate intimate secrets about small subsets of your of your groups. And when people talk about personalization. They they generally don't talk about how this can make things marginally better for a small for some small percentage of our business. They think of it as like a, this this secret bullet. And too many of these marketing ideas are pitched as these secret bullets. When really they're marginal improvements on their on a marginal number of their customers. Um,
0: is there, is there, is there any, you know, going simple, is there anything around personalization you can do for a big impact and then you move on? Is there anything around that? Or is that just mostly just a marginal topic?
1: Th- th- no, no, there are things. So it depends what you can, hence what you define as personalization, but simple things yeah, like, true. Hey, say you're an e-commerce, most people are doing this now, but if you're an e-commerce retail and someone buys something saying, Hey, uh, of people who bought this thing, here are other things they bought. Like, yeah, that's not personalization on the individual level, but it's per- personalization on the purchase level, and and that that works. And in, in the old that's days, so- we, call, we we we, we called that uh, we didn't call that personalization, we called that cross-selling. Right, like this yeah. is it's, McDonald's did this 50 years ago when they said, "Would you like fries with that?" Uh, it's 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 not like hey, let's look the person in the eye and figure out their deep motivation to decide what to do next. It's no, this person bought a hamburger. Some percentage of people who bought hamburgers would al- are also going to buy fries if you ask them. So figure out what your products are selling and figure out what you should be cross-selling people. Um, right. That's, that's, it's high, highly valuable. Uh, it, but it's not, again, it's 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 an idea that's 50 years old or maybe even 100 years old. Um, and, and these simple, basic ideas implemented well make a big difference.
0: Are there any other of these traps, these things that are like personalization where you're like, it's a silver, what are the popular silver silver bullets that we should watch out for, you know?
1: Um, Yeah. So a a lot of the, the, the latest things are all things around AI and machine learning. And again, I'm not saying AI machine learning aren't real. Like they, they, uh, robots are, are winning at go. They're winning at chess. Um, these are, these are real things that Mm -hmm. real companies are doing. Um, but whatever you're going to do at your company is probably not what Google is doing on facial recognition. Um, and so what you're doing is like a small marginal thing on a, on a marginal part of your business. The The best example of this, I think, is uh, is on paid search. Mm-hmm. I imagine most of your listeners are doing paid search in some way, shape, or form. Um, if you go to Google and ask them how to do paid search, they'll say, use our, our new AI deep learning algorithm, and it'll do all the bidding and all the ad copy and everything for you, um, and all the targeting for you, and it's super smart, and, and so on. Um, and the answer is that, that's probably the right answer for many people who are doing paid search really, really terribly. Google's yeah. AI is better than terrible, terrible paid search, uh, um, and most people are doing terrible, terrible paid search. Right. But it's not better than great paid search. Right. It's kind of like what it's kind of like what the AIs were doing in chess, um, like forty years ago, thirty years ago, something like that. Where hey, the AIs could beat an amateur chess player, but yeah. the grandmasters still destroyed them. Um, right. AIs have now gotten so good that they destroy even the grandmasters. But AIs and paid search are just not that good, and so. Yeah. Um, if you're really good at paid, no, what does really good at paid search mean? Really good at paid search is um, being hyper relevant. And so whatever the person types into their paid search bar, you want to make sure that your ad copy, that you have an ad group targeted at that keyword and that your ad copy reads the same as that keyword. So if you're selling red umbrellas in Austin, Texas, um, and someone searches for red umbrellas in Austin, Texas, your ad should read, hey, come and buy some red umbrellas in Austin, Texas. So again, not rocket science. Super, super simple. And we're space. not saying
0: come buy an umbrella That's in right. the world. We're saying in Austin, Texas, red umbrella, exactly what you're looking for.
1: Exactly, right? And if the person searches for like a, a blue luxury umbrella in Seattle, the ad should read, we sell blue luxury umbrellas in Seattle, right? Just, right. just pair it back to the person what they say and it's going to show that, that it's going to tell Google that, hey, we're not just doing like broad matches on this stuff. We know exactly right. want. We have exactly what this person is looking for. And it right. tells the person, like, hey, I searched for this thing. Oh, this person is selling the exact thing I'm looking for. Yeah. Um, and, and, and that is the secret to page search. The, and, again, 90% of page search marketers are not doing this. They're right. doing That's not some th-
0: sexy app either. That's hard work, lots of details, building lots of landing pages or some kind of – machine that can spit out relevant text, but either way, that's, a, that's work. It's, it's a ton of, work.
1: again, if you're only selling red umbrellas in Austin, Texas, it's not that much work at all. You build True. one <laughs> ad for red umbrellas. But if you're selling like 20 products with right. 20 colors in a thousand cities, with uh, some of them are luxury, some of them are cheap, and some of them are uh, uh, um, waterproof, um, whatever, the you multiply all of those by each other, and you're gonna end up with millions of keywords almost every time. Right. Um, Like uh, when I was at a place for mom, we really only sold one product. We helped people find senior housing. Um, and yet we had 14 million keywords when I was at general assembly, we sold like, you can say we sold five products, but it's basically training school training skills. Um, and yeah, we, we were, we were in the, the, the 30, 40 million keywords. And so, uh, it doesn't, doesn't take long. And so the challenge is not conceptual. The conceptual challenge is super straightforward. Just match the stuff the person's typing in. Um, the challenge becomes operationalizing that. Is like, how do you run a database and making sure all your ad copy is updated? How do you group these keywords together? Because if you're bidding on 12, 14 million keywords, you're probably not getting 14 million clicks in a given month, which right. means, let alone conversions, which means most of your keywords are getting zero clicks. Um, so how do you measure conversion rate on a click? How do you measure the value of each click? We well, have to find smart ways to group them. And so you got to go and do all that work to be like, hey, you know what? Like, uh, let, let's group all our red all our umbrellas together across the country to find out what our value per umbrella is. Okay. Let's have a multiplier based on what city you're in, because it turns out that Seattle people are convert 10% better than Austin people. Oh, and wait a minute. Let's, True. we need a color modifier that, Hey, blue is like 5% less popular than red. Like, like, so you basically do all these, mm. these things so you can figure out what your right bidding is. Um, uh, and so you need to be smart about that. But right. all of that stuff is not, again, it's not hard. It's, so it's not conceptually difficult. It's just hard to execute. Right. So, what we go back to our first thing: Do most agencies do that? Absolutely not, because most people aren't asking; they don't even know to ask for it. Instead, right. they go and use Google's algorithm, because that's best practice. They're doing what Google tells them to do. They tell their client, "I'm doing what Google told me to do." Google, the client doesn't know any better, and every, everybody's happy, and performance is lower. And so, if you want to do it really, really well, you know how to. You need to do it this way. Um right. And I've seen every time I've executed that paid search, moving from Google's algorithm to doing it the smart way of like uh, getting this extensive ad copy. Um, you tend, tend to see 40% drop in cost per click. Wow. You ex- you, because you have this keyword expansion, you get this full coverage on keywords, you get a keyword expansion, you get 30, 40% higher uh, volume. Uh, and so you end up paying your, your co- total cost ends up being about the same as it was before um, on 40% more volume. Right. Uh, wow. It's a game changer for businesses. Yeah. And again, most people aren't doing it. Most people aren't doing it. Right. Um, Here's my act. (laughs) Do this and go home and do it. And if you can't, if you can't do it yourself, uh, contact me and I will set you up with someone who can do it for you. I'm not going to do it. I'm, 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 I'm no longer doing this stuff. But I'm happy to (laughs) connect you with someone who will. But this is the single best thing any company can do that's significantly in paid search to fix their business. And instead, they're spending time trying to find the next algorithm or fancy conversion optimization stuff. Um, Right. The
0: tech tool to Simplify everything for them, or yeah. You know, well, you you're getting into ROI a little bit on there, and it brings up the topic of attribution. Where, where does it, where do you stand with that? What's the BS? What's the reality when it comes to attribution? And there's first click, last click, multi-click, all the different models. Especially yeah, in the new world, you know, when you have like complex sale. It it it,
1: it, it is tough, um, and so the answer most people give is hey, let's use this advanced, big, deep learning algorithm again. (laughs) Put it it in the black box and it'll spit out this rough weighting of uh, everything. I did some of that work when I was at McKinsey. Um, And uh, you you don't need that stuff. As soon as you put something in a black box, you're not going to understand what's actually happening. And if you don't understand what's happening, you're making decisions in the dark. um, And you don't want to be doing that. Uh, The way I like to think about attribution is start really simple. Take your... um, uh, Take your last click or your first click. I don't even care. Just some sort of simple model. Um, first of all, get attribution. <laughs> so do that. A lot of companies are known to have attribution, but get get some basic attribution. Get some basic rules. Uh, many times, your um, attribution. So if you talk about B two B businesses. Mm-hmm. You oftentimes, collect the email address first, and then the sale happens later. And there's all sorts of touches that happen between the email address and the sale. Yeah. Um, yeah. Focus on like that email address or getting that first contact and figuring out, okay, what are the touches that led up to that? And oftentimes you're only going to have one or two touches there to get that email address. Where the the multi-touches happen is from email address into sale. Um, What you want to do is set up small scale experiments where possible. um, And then use those small scale experiments to, to, to measure what your cannibalization or your synergy rate is with any given channel. If you treat that channel as like the only touch, um, So I'll give you an example of that. Right. So, um, uh, uh, this has happened in Expedia where we'd acquire the customer through like email or through paid search or so on. Um, and then they come to the site and then we would email them after the fact. And then that email would overwrite all the old attribution. And so the email channel was getting all the credit. So email was doing things like, uh, uh, they would send this email out. The, the number one most valuable email, according to the email team, was an email that went to you oftentimes after a booking. And they would say the email subject line was just, um, your flight details have changed. You know, okay. You open radars on that email. Like the email it was close to 100%. As gonna Everyone come. looks at it. Right? Like if, I, if you have an e- a flight leaving tomorrow, and I hit you an email that says like, your flight details have changed, you forget to open that email. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and you know what the email content says? It says like, click here to find out how your flight deals details have changed. Well, guess what? The click through rate on that email was also off the charts. Yeah. And, why did, why, and then why did the email team do that? Because as soon as you clicked on that email, if you made any purchase in the next 30 days, that email got the credit for last touch. What? And you came to the website, maybe something like hey, your gate has changed from B 17 to B 18. And, in exchange for that, the, they, the email team now has gotten credit for, the, for your sales. And they're like, oh, "That's why this, they're like, this email is extremely valuable. It's driving so many sales. I'm like, it's not driving sales. You're just stealing attribution. Um, yeah. Again,
0: how do you beat uh, that? How do you avoid that trap?
1: Um, so it's, you try to find, you measure the incrementality of, of any given channel. Okay. Um, and oftentimes that's fairly standard. So a paid search tends to be slightly more, slightly more, then pause it then then base incrementality, so like if you get if your paid search your last touch paid search is driving uh, a ten dollars worth of revenue it's probably actually driving like eleven or twelve dollars worth of revenue you're actually getting a little bit more because there's people who are clicking and then like it's getting overwritten someplace else so you're not track the attribution is not working properly right. um, uh, paid un- unbranded sorry branded paid search is the opposite so if you're if someone's searching for marketing b s and I have an ad, a paid ad for marketing BS up at the top. Um, a lot of people who click on that would have come to me anyway. Uh, it's it's a navigational search. Um, uh, but not everybody. And so we found when I've done tests on this, like the incrementality on branded search is somewhere around like 5%, 5 to 10%. And so 90 or 95% of those people would be getting that volume anyway. Uh, and so you just you do the math now. So if, you, if you're spending a dollar on paid search, to, uh, on branded paid search to make $100, and you say, oh, no, no, it's 90% cannibalized, that means you're spending a dollar to make $10. Well, spending a dollar to make $10 is still okay. Still so, fine, yeah. You still want to do it. Um, and so uh, a lot of attribution, that's what you need to figure it out. You don't need okay. the attribution to figure out what your perfect number is. So like, you need the attribution to figure out, should I still be doing this, or should I be accelerating this, or, or how good is this? Um, and if you can do that on small scale tests You can take those small scales tests and assume that they're, they're going to hold when you do other things.
0: Right. On, so not getting wrapped around the decimal, like you're trying to figure out the simplest side, should I keep doing this or not? That's
1: right. Like you, you're, is it working? Your job in business is not to be an academic to get to the right answer. Your job in business is to figure out like what actions should I be taking? Um, uh, the 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 worst one of the worst marketing channels the most like inflated marketing channels I shouldn't say worst one of the most inflated marketing channels is um, uh, uh, re- remarketing. Um, huh. In remarketing, the whole idea is you've they've come to your site they've shopped around they, they maybe they bought or they haven't bought but you want them to come back and buy again right. and so you basically do marketing to those people that already already know about your product you
0: cookie um, them and then your ads start showing up on Yahoo and all their places
1: all year round right now now so the problem with with retargeting is that um, the these people are they, by definition these people already know who you are and so right. some percentage of those people are come back gonna come back and buy from you anyway mm, uh, good and point. so uh, the it, the the channel is not incre, not one hundred percent incremental. It's not zero, right? So some some that that retargeting does something, but it doesn't do nearly as much as any attribution methodology projects. Um, when we've run tests on that, and we ha- we have run tests, what we did is we we took people that we were going to retarget to, we split them into A cell and B cell. The A cell we did our standard retargeting to, and the B cell we did the same amount of retargeting, but instead of showing our ads, we showed ads for the Red Cross. Okay, uh, and so. Presumably, the ads for the Red Cross didn't drive them to our business, right. uh, but we could measure clicks and view throughs and so on for that group. And then we could measure because we knew who, again because we knew who all these people were. That's why we were retargeting them. We could see what, what the sales were like for the people we retargeted to and the people we showed Red Cross ads to. And retargeting ended up being like roughly twenty percent incremental. So for all the attribution that we, that that the retargeting said we had, mm-hmm. about eighty percent of it was bunk. We would have got it anyway, and twenty percent of it was real. And so,
0: well, 80% of it you would have had, so it was just a, there was a, I mean, some people would say 20% is a good lift though.
1: That's they? right. So, But it comes down to your economics. And so yeah. you look at pay, what happens in retargeting. Oftentimes we're like, Hey, it's our most effective channel. We're spending a dollar to make $3 on our, our normal spend is we spend like a dollar to make a dollar fifty. but on retargeting, we're spending a dollar to make $3. Isn't that awesome? Well, unless that $3 is only eight, 20% incremental, in which case you're spending a dollar to make 60 cents on your retargeting. Oh, shit. Yeah, which is, what, which is what you see almost all the time. Again, I, really? I say almost all the time, but not always. Like there, there have been people where I've looked at the retargeting and they're spending a dollar to make a hundred and fifty dollars. And there, I'm like, oh well, even if you're only ten percent effective, you're spending a dollar to make fifteen dollars, and that's okay too. Fine. Uh, so yeah. it all comes down to the the details for your particular business, but you need to understand that hey, retargeting is going to be extremely cannibalistic. um conversely like things like television and spending at conferences tend to be very synergistic you get all sorts of impact from it that you aren't able to measure uh, right. that, that you aren't counting um, and so
0: what's your take on that kind of thing right because like some things you can't the things you can't measure the ethereal the podcast the the corporate events the i mean some trade shows you can measure you've met people or not but there's so much of that fuzziness that's hard to
1: and again, the key is to eliminate as much of that fuzziness as possible. Okay. Get as much tracking as you can do, um, and then estimate what you think that, that multiplier effect is. Uh, and so, the better you are at tracking, ironically, the the the, the smaller your um, your your the fuzz. Yeah, small, smaller the bonus you're going to get. Smaller the synergistic effect. If you're uh, doing a perfect job tracking, then then that's the answer. But if you're doing a terrible job tracking, then there's going to be a much worse than doing no tracking at all. Um, they'd be like, oh, like we're spending like 20% of our marketing budget every year on conferences and it's gotten us one sale. Well, I guarantee it's gotten them more than one sale. I just don't know how many more than one sale, but they, they're tracking so poorly that it has a bigger effect. And most and those companies in those situation just kind of wave their hands and say, hey, that's what we spent last year. We're going to spend it again this year. Yeah. What that, you should do instead is find some way to track as best as possible the minimum impact from your conferences. And maybe that's a matter of like, like getting a list of everyone who attended the conference and seeing whether or not, or all the companies that attended the conference and then seeing whether you got leads from those companies anytime in the next three months afterwards. Um, Maybe it's a matter of like getting lists, paying for the entire list off the whole conference and reaching out to all of those people. Um, It's doing the best you can to get some sort of tracking from that conference to like measure, okay, here's what, here's the, Here's, here's the least that this, 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 impact is. And right. if you dollar on conferences to make like 50 cents that you can track, then you'd be, then you need to ask yourself, like, do we believe that the actual impact is twice what we're able to track or three nice. times or four times? And, and if you do, then, Hey, by all means go and spend on the conferences, but you need to get that baseline somehow. And then you need to like, at least find some way to measure the, the multiple or at least like all nod hands and, and agree that this is what we think the multiple is.
0: Right. Right. I've heard a couple of times, it sounds like, almost like, like a status, not status quo, but like base, basic procedure, standard operating procedure for you is to, to, to see what kind of lift you get by having a, having a a base case, like the red cross, like always having that, that group, that control group where you're not touching them to see how really good are we? Because I think a lot of times what we do in marketing is we just do that, new test we don't have the base case and so we just like congratulate ourselves for the 80% lift not realizing you know, or the 100% lift, but not realizing only 20% of it was really what we've done.
1: So, how many conversion rate optimization teams go and take all their tests they ran for the course of the year, add up all their improvements, and say that they drove like 100% growth in the business? Uh, right. And then you look and say, but our business only grew by 10%. And like, oh, wow. <laughs> if it wasn't for us, it would have shrunk. Like, we, we, oh, there's always like, there's always an excuse, right? And so, so you need to, to like, Again, look at these things in isolation, try your best to find out what the base is, figure out what you think the multiplier is going to be, um, and and decide if it is what you think it's going to believe. Um, uh, and, And too often the times the incentives are for marketers to trumpet all their successes and not really look at what's actually working.
0: Right. Right. But going, you know, full trumpet circle.
1: It's trumpeting all of their like apparent successes. Right. If the CMO goes to their CFO and says, Hey, all that marketing we spent last year on retargeting was all terrible marketing spend and it was 20% of my budget and it was a waste of time. What's the CFO going to say? It feels like, <laughs> okay, well let's just cut that from your marketing budget next year. Now your marketing budget is 20% smaller. And the CMO said, no, the way I get my next job is by having a big marketing budget. So the right. CMO says like explains why all of their marketing spend is awesome. Um, uh, instead of actually trying to figure out what actually is working and what isn't.
0: And that, that unvirtuous cycle continues then from earlier. This is this is um, great stuff. I love that you just kind of keep it real. You're like pulling the veil back, just showing us what is, happens and then what should be happening behind there. So my next question really for you is like, who are you? Like, where did you come from? How did you become this sage, this oracle of BS smashing and marketing growth advising like take us back to like little ed days did you always know you're going to be doing stuff like this i mean
1: tell us what's up uh-uh. in case I'm too old my, my job didn't exist when i was a kid <laughs> yeah there, 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 were, there were no there were no people running marketing analytics Mar- marketing such that it was like i grew up in like, the 70s and the 80s right so the, the marketing that existed back then um what was uh was all qualitative right it was it was it was deciding what it, it, it was uh it, it was mad men it, it, it was uh, yeah. uh it was telling good sto- it was storytelling is what it was storytelling right.
0: like your finger holding the air yeah
1: and more than that it was about like telling compelling stories to get other people to believe you so okay. that you could convince them to do the thing that you, you wanted them to do um and uh, hey storytelling is really 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 important and there's an element to it in marketing there's just uh it's dangerous when it comes to when it's being used in marketing strategy
0: Right, right. Right. When you're telling stories for the strategy, not basing it on some sound principles, whatnot. So, I mean, did you grow up in uh, Seattle or where did you, where did No, you- I grew
1: up in, I'm Canadian. I'm, I grew up in Canada. In no Ottawa. kidding.
0: I, I couldn't even tell this whole time. No, no uh, process and no O's and A's. And
1: you know. I, uh, uh my, my wife will be proud. She, my wife is American. I've been down here for a long time. Uh, <laughs> she still mocks me sometimes. We went, we went for a run one time. And uh, uh, I said, hey, she's like, how far are we going to run? I said, we're just going to run down that pylon and back. And she started getting, she's like, there's no pylon there. I'm like, what are you talking about? There's a pylon right there. We started like arguing in the middle of the run. And then all of a sudden we got to the pylon. I turned around and started running back. And she's like, what are you doing? I'm like, we got to the pylon. Now I'm running back. And she's like, like, that's not a pylon. That's a cone. And I'm like, what do you mean it's a cone? We call it a pylon. (laughs) 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 We discovered that Canadians and Americans speak different languages sometimes. Oh,
0: they totally do. Where in Canada are you from?
1: I grew up in Ottawa, Canada, the capital.
0: Ottawa, so Senators fan.
1: Uh, again, there's no Senators when I was growing up. They didn't oh, start until well, after I. Uh, they well, didn't. I, I mean, started when I was in college, I think.
0: Really, no kidding. So who who would be the team du jour? And uh, I guess can I assume you play hockey?
1: <laughs> I do not play hockey. My, 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 hey, when you play hockey in Canada, it 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 eats up your whole life. Well, even even.
0: Right, even it's even serious. College. Right, it's like not you don't you do play around. Canada hockey. I mean, it's serious business. This is like twenty four seven job.
1: Yeah, like you're getting up at 5 a.m. and going to the rinks <laughs> every morning. And my, my parents wanted nothing with, to do with that. So they uh, they signed me up for every sport imaginable to keep me distracted from asking to play hockey.
0: Right, other than hockey is all the other things.
1: That's right. I, I, pl- I played tennis, and I ran track, and I played lacrosse, and like any, anything to not play hockey.
0: Uh-huh. Any regrets there?
1: <laughs> uh, you pick
0: it up later in life, like, oh, yeah. I got to get back to my national <laughs> sport, eh?
1: <laughs> they, they definitely uh get mocked sometime. but no I, I i i can skate so i can take my kids skating the oh, yeah. kids at this age, i'm not gonna be playing hockey very much anyway
0: yeah i i did a um you know I, I never got into really skating or anything as a kid and um learned how to skate when i was in college really and i took this intro to hockey for adults class and it was like a bunch of folks from their 20s all the way through like 60s and whatever with mismatched gear you know we looked like the mighty ducks we had like different colored gloves and nothing matched but we were all on the ice and we had like a a coach um, take us through drills and then we had a little scrimmage afterward it was cool and we were all falling down all the time it was it was funny to
1: watch that's great yeah when i was was at business school there was a there was a, a hockey team and um they tried to get recruited they're like you're canadian you can come be on the hockey team like, i never played hockey they're like can you skate i'm like well, i can skate and they're like can you skate backwards and i'm like yeah i can skate backwards it's like oh you'll be on the a team <laughs> like, oh, oh
0: no <laughs> oh that's crazy so so when when it came time to go to school and so what did you what did you pick and what was your thought process
1: yeah i i um Man, I, I I was young and I just wanted to learn stuff. So I, I uh, yeah I took physics in my last year of high school. I thought it was super fascinating. Uh, I thought quantum mechanics was fascinating. So it was special relativity, general relativity. So I decided I just wanted to learn that. And I realized that I was not going to learn it with unless I was in some sort of academic setting. Uh, yeah. I knew I knew I could I could learn history and drama and psychology. Many of these things that I was also interested in. I figured I could learn most of those things on my own. But there's no way that I was going to sit down and, and learn the math required to do general relativity unless I was in an academic setting. So right. that's what I did. So I ended up majoring in physics through my undergrad. Um, I never ended up using it at any time in my life, but uh, it was the only time that I was going to force myself to learn it.
0: You sure? Because I feel like every kind of major we do that isn't marketing kind of adds a sort of flair and color to how we do marketing.
1: Yeah, well, it definitely helped me with math, right? So um, yeah, I, I can my, 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 tell.
0: I'm, I'm being blown away by numbers on this podcast, so it's fantastic.
1: I have to be a little careful sometimes because the, the numbers do come very fast and uh, especially when they aren't written down, it's hard to follow. Uh, but uh, yeah, so I, I I definitely did a lot of math and I came out very strong analytically. Uh, yeah. So that Everything was very comfortable for me.
0: Okay. So it's like, let's do physics, quantum physics and go deep on Big Bang Theory. I, did you, have you seen that TV show? Did that, was that how it no. no, was no, for
1: I'm, you? <laughs> I don't watch a lot of TV, but my mom loves that show. She says it reminds me. The the people on there remind them of her kids, which apparently Uh,
0: (laughs) you'll have to ask her which one you are. (laughs) I should. (laughs) Uh, We'll we'll all take straw poll bets over here until we find that out. So, okay, so you you did that. At what point did you, you know, catch the marketing bug?
1: Uh, So, my last year of university, my uh, one of my good buddies was in commerce, and uh, he tried to drag me to these info sessions and his pitch was, Hey, come to Xeno fashion. they have free alcohol and free food. Oh, and I was a very poor student. And the sold. idea of like, yeah, free alcohol and free food was pretty compelling. So I, uh, I went to these info sessions and, um, I was like, man, maybe I'll go and work in business. Uh, so I took a job with, uh, with Procter and Gamble, um, off of one of these info sessions. And wow. So While well, you're still a,
0: in school or that was like your first job out, first
1: of, job out of school. First job out of wow. school. Yeah. And so, uh, and I, I knew nothing going in. Right. I, I, um, I joined a group called the called CBD, and I was like, I I didn't know what that stood for. When I learned what it stood for, I still didn't know what it meant. Turned out it meant a customer business development, which actually meant sales. And so I was in sales. Uh, uh, but uh, frankly, it t- took me like four months into the job before I realized I was even in sales because P and G refused to use that word.
0: Uh, you know, it's funny now though, because if you were joined the CBD team, right, it'd be a pretty relaxed team these days.
1: Oh. You know what, the what, what CBD
0: you, oils and like the cannabis and all of Oops, that. CBD.
1: Oh, that's interesting. You know,
0: like, hey, I'm joining the CBD team, and everyone's like, "All right, have fun, man."
1: That's interesting. Now, this was this was CBD as in like uh, trying, to help, <laughs> trying to trying trying to help Wal- Walmart sell more toilet paper, right? Sell more Charmin. Um, yeah. So hey, I I I, I, I so that was my. It wasn't marketing. It was it was it was it was account management and selling to yeah. retailers. Um okay. I, did, I did some like. Uh, Non-retailers to um, to uh, l- larger scale like uh, um, food service businesses and so on. So there, there's some real sales right. in there, but it was a sales job. I did that for three years and then switched to a, a small little candy company um, to, to do some actual real marketing. Wow! Uh, um, what kind of candy? You get me hungry. Uh, b- bubble gum, you know, d- double bubble bubble gum. Yeah, no kidding. Um, and and that hey, that business was just was it was a, was a, was a uh, an arbitrage business like the. Uh, Sugar is much cheaper in Canada than it is in the U S and so they would make the gum in, the, in Canada and then they would ship it to the U S because there'd be tariffs on sugar, but not on gum. And basically gum is just made up of all sugar. Oh. So it was, it was a nice little triage business more than anything else. And uh, we didn't have data. We were kind of flying by the seat of our pants. And, but I got, I, I kind of learned the basics of marketing. Uh, and then from there I went to business school where I learned actual analytical marketing. I got to like, kind of be like, Hey, now that I've kind of understand the way CPG businesses work, and I've done some marketing. I understand what marketing is. I got to combine that with the the math skills that I picked up in undergrad. I, right. I spent a couple of years at Wharton um, working under a bunch of smart professors, uh, yeah. and I got to apply h- quantitative math skills to the mar- these marketing ideas. And so I got to take the skill set I'd built in my undergrad and combine it with the um, with the the experiences I had uh, um, prior to it going in between undergrad and business school. Hmm. Um, it was fun. I in, decided like I want to do more, more of that.
0: In Warden, right? Warden for an MBA and for marketing. That's pretty, that's pretty high powered education, right there. Was, um, it, was it all it was cracked up to be?
1: It was great. Yeah, it was a fantastic experience. I met very, very smart people that have influenced my career um, in numerous ways. The, a lot of people talk about not learning anything in business school. I learned yeah. a ton in business school. Um, I, I went into it not knowing much, right? I went, went into it knowing the CPG world. But yeah. man, they, showed, they threw an accounting statement in front of me. And they're like, I remember the first, one of the first days there, they said, hey, find the three most important pages in this uh, financial statement. Oh, geez. Um, and I was like, I'm like, I have no idea. <laughs> <And> like, <laughs> the fact that it was like the, the, the income statement, the cash flow statement, and the balance sheet, I'm like, like, like I, I didn't know that, right? And I, and I think right. a lot of people go into business school knowing those things, and, and I didn't. So um, I, I learned a lot about uh, business in general, and then I specialized in quantitative marketing in particular.
0: Got it. Yeah, that's gotta be that's gotta be amazing. Do you know Peter Fader by chance?
1: I do. Yeah, I, I talk to him all the time.
0: You do? Okay. Yeah, I, I, I chatted with him. Um, you know, I'm I'm kind of like salty about education because I had like a so-so education. Most of mine was like doing it practically outside of school. But after chatting with Peter for like an hour, being schooled one-on-one, um, learning from him, it was just like, whoa,
1: Wharton, wow, amazing. Yeah, he, he, Peter's great. I took a couple of classes with him, and I've stayed in touch over the years.
0: Yeah, he's a good guy. So, so you, you did that, and, and how did you get to present day today? Like where you got the newsletter, you got the book, LA Marketing BS, love it. Anything that – I mean, it's, it's so dangerous, though, right? Because you're, you're shattering people's hopes and dreams, and, and you're, you're pulling away the curtain from all the tech vendors who are incentivized to give people bad strategy.
1: Uh, had any death it, threats from the marketing community for that? It, book? It, it's interesting. Like when I, when I was at, uh, at Procter and Gamble, um, like if I did a, like for a lot of that job, if I did a really good job. People ate more Pringles potato chips. And like at some point in my life, I realized that I don't think people should be eating more Pringles potato chips. <laughs> you agreed. Yeah. Right? And so like, um, uh, it, 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 I learned a ton. It was really valuable to me, but I don't think I was adding a, a ton of value to the world. Um, and so, uh, Nothing totally against, get that. Nothing against selling potato chips. Um, someone has to do it, but I, 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 I wanted to do more. And yeah. so, um, and one of the things I believe in is that uh, if we can improve, if we can make things more efficient, people will then go and use that efficiency to be to better their lives in the ways that they choose. I'm yeah. a bit of a, a libertarian that way. It's like letting people do what they they want to be doing and let them make their own choices. Um, but the way you give people more choices is by making the world more efficient and better. And so right. I spent four, four years post-business school um, working at McKinsey, trying to like, make companies better and more efficient. Um, and that's, man, it feels like uh, a lot of people have, have poisoned that, that name now, McKinsey. But like, uh, I thought, I, I think the, the work I did there, I'm very proud of. And, and I think we did good things. Um, and then I left... Uh, McKinsey to go to uh, uh, Expedia and did a bunch of work for them. Yeah. Um, I left Expedia to go to a company called The Place for Mom. And uh, that, that called the Expedia for Senior Housing. Um, okay. I spent four and a half years fixing that business, turning it around. And our job there was to help people find senior housing for their parents. Um yeah. And again, I, I also think that as we did a better job with that business, that business could have been a nonprofit, frankly, because the, the work that we were doing, hmm. as, as we made more money, as we, were more, as, we were, as we grew, we were helping more people in one of the hardest parts of their lives. Yeah. Um, I, I left uh place Your mom to go to General Assembly, where again, we, we were transforming people's lives. We took people who uh, were dissatisfied with their jobs and the career prospects, put them through a training program and spit them out and 97 to 99% of them ended up getting a job in tech with a big salary increase and much more satisfaction. Like we were doing good stuff. After leaving General Assembly, I took a step back to figure out kind of what what is important and what where do I wanna be spending my time? And uh, hey, part of that was spending time with my kids. So I have three little ones under the age of six. And uh, if I can get them to be successful people and satisfied people with their lives, I think that's gonna be a pretty good successful thing in part of my life. Yeah. Uh, and then, then, what, then what else do I do? Like, what do I do with the rest of my time? Uh, and I think this mission of like, hey, if we can make the world a more efficient place, uh, um, I think that's that's a thing I can do. Um, and uh, so I spend about a week, a month or so with Warburg Pincus, helping out across their portfolio companies. Uh, they have a wide variety of businesses across a wide wide number of industries. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I float across those different businesses and help them think through tough problems and uh um, it's fun. It's a, And and I get to learn a lot about different these different uh, industries that I'd never heard of before um, that often have these similar issues. Uh, and so that's kind of the way I kind of stay in the game. And I have a couple of other companies. Like I sit on some boards and I, um, I do some advisements uh, with some other companies. Uh, and so that kind of keeps me in the game a bit. Um, yeah. And the rest of my time, I, I do some speaking. Um, I appear on podcasts like this one, trying to get my ideas across. Um, I work on my book. And, uh, and I read this newsletter we talked about at the top of the, yeah, I love the newsletter. podcast, but, um, the newsletter is a thing that I, I'm, I, I'm satisfied with more than anything else That the time I spend on that every week to make sure it's awesome. And I, I pay a, a professional editor to go through and, uh, uh, to pay it, I pay a professional editor to go through it all and, and, Make sure it's all great and even better. He goes and puts all the images in and so on, fixes my spelling mistakes, Uh and so I, I think it's it's a great product that I produce every week, and then I'm really really happy with it, and hopefully uh, it's influencing some people on the margin, and again making the world a better place, and that's that's, that's all we can all hope to do.
0: Yeah, I know it is because I I, I w- it was not BS earlier too when I said that it's the one that I I subscribe to. I've even had friends that have their own newsletters and. I can't even handle some of theirs, but, um, but man, I, you know, I, I got it. And I usually what happens is you look at one, you're like, "What? Well, all right, let's check it out see if it's worth, you know, the unsubscribe or whatnot. But man, there's like data points. There's like, Hey, you thought about this because actually there's some data points. And actually I remember one when the coronavirus was first coming out and it was around the idea of like, is Corona taking a hit from this? or Are they benefiting from, even though it's a negative brand hit, like, are they, are they getting more attention and people are buying more corona or not? And you were analyzing the data. So there was like a very interesting question, almost like you're proposing some sort of quantum physics theory hypothesis. And, and then there was this data to back it up and say, well, yes in this regard, but no in this regard. And I just, I could tell it was well prepared and fun, funny, and like fun to, to, to read. So I, I could, you know, whatever you're doing is magic. So I definitely would keep it up.
1: That's great. Yeah, you have to thank my editor sometimes for some of the jokes that he puts in. I think there was a, uh, I think one of the ones I wrote last year was about loyalty programs and Starbucks in particular, Um, and I said there was like a a large effect or something like that. He went and changed that to like a Vendy effect. So, Uh,
0: thank him for uh, some of the. Who's who's your editor?
1: Uh, That's a guy named Nick Hansen. Uh, All right, Nick,
0: shout out. You just you just made that thing that much funnier. So uh, now we don't know who to give credit to if it's funny. But uh, yeah, on that note. You've done a bunch of comedy in your past, right? Uh,
1: I have. It was a long time ago, but I, I did. I, uh, My last year of high school, I started doing improv comedy, and uh, I ran with it for quite a while. I ended up wow. coaching uh, a high school team back in Canada, t- took them to the national championships, uh, the finals and national championships multiple times. And uh, I wrote a book about the topic with, 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 actually, with Nick, who's my editor right now for my newsletter. Um, we wrote a, a book that at one point was the number one improv book on, on Amazon. Um less to do with the quality of the book and more because uh we, we just called it the improv book and apparently that that was like a way to win amazon's wow. algorithm with, with
0: time. i see it and you know i did some i did theater all throughout school and college and certainly one of my jams um i don't even know maybe i even had this book that's crazy crazy to think about yeah I, improv is so much fun right it's like yes and i just love that sometimes i t- i tell my wife when i say a joke that's terrible And she like dings me like, that's horrible. I'm like, no, 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 I don't want to hear that. I want to hear yes. And from you, you know, (laughs) (laughs) it's the, it's the, it's, it's a magical thing. So, so you, you did that and you're winning competitions
1: and yeah,
0: do you, do you still do any of that kind of performance stuff or any of that comedy? Oh,
1: very, very little. I, I, uh, when, when I started my job at McKinsey, uh, I realized like I just didn't have the, I was working 60, 70, 80 Mm -hmm. hours a week, like trying to and and traveling extensively, like there's just no way for me to keep it up. Um, so I actually started doing some stand-up when I was at McKinsey. So it was a lot easier, right? You can um, you can just write the material up anytime you want, and then if you need to perform, you just go and spend an evening performing, right? So it, uh, it was flexible enough that I could. Do, and I was when I was traveling, I could go and perform wherever i happened to be so like i it was fun i'd go into like i remember i, I, I won an, uh, a a stand up competition in kansas city once and i went to the Melbourne international comedy festival made it to their state finals um uh, competing as a local ah. so like it it, 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 it it was it was fun moving around um and uh but i did that stand up comedy about basically until i moved to seattle um and then when i moved to seattle the stand up scene here is very difficult like the only way to do stand up like open mic stand up here is all the sets are only three minutes. So if you have some stand-up material and you and you have like a minute opening and a minute closing, you use the middle to test new material. Well, if you do if you're doing a five minute set, you can do your open material, your ending material and you have like three minutes of new material you can rehearse. Um, but if you only have three minutes of material, you do your opening bit and your end bit and you only have like one minute of material to he- rehearse. And so the amount of like right. new material you could rehearse per night was just significantly lower. Uh, combine that with, um, uh, There was no bookings in advance for um, for stand up in Seattle. You just had to show up. And then find out that night if you're going to get me on stage or not. And so my 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 time just was like I, I was a professional. I was an executive at right. the media. like I I just couldn't rationalize it making it work. And so I've done it a handful of times since moving to Seattle. Um, like after I met my wife, I went and did it once so she could see me perform. And we had I we had, I did one night where I had a bunch of friends over, and so we're like, yeah, let's all go. out And you guys can watch me do some stand up one time. Um, we actually we did a scavenger hunt once <laughs> uh, with my uh, my two year old at the time, uh, and. Uh, one of the things in the scavenger hunt was like, you had to like film yourself doing stand up at a professional stand up place. And <laughs> so I, I, I took her with me on stage and we did, we did a, we did standup for the scavenger hunt. Oh, uh, geez. Man, I, I don't, I don't have time to do it very much anymore.
0: Yeah. You know, I, I found the same thing for me in theater and man, I always loved comedy. I actually wrote a, a comedy play um, when I was deployed one time. And yeah, I just, I think I'd love at some point to be able to spend more time doing that. Um, but for me, sometimes the, the podcasting and, and the presenting and at conferences that, that can kind of be that performance, you know, kind of fills that need a little bit. I don't know. You kind of have similar experiences.
1: Yeah. I, I, I love it. And so like, at least now when I do my, um, when I'm talking at conferences, um, hopefully sometimes I'm a little bit funny and uh, um, I get that, that, that thrill of being up on stage um, mm-hmm. that, uh, yeah, that, that, I, that I got for the standup.
0: Absolutely, man. Well, you know, one of the things I wanted to ask you um, just around your your career, you've had all these experiences if if you can go back in a time machine and I may or may not have a time machine in New Hampshire here um, you can't come visit now because of the coronavirus, but you know should' have let you in the time machine at some point it does take credit card um, and you could go back to the beginning of your career you just got you just got out of school, you're undergrad. what would you tell yourself? if you could advise yourself of anything from all your experiences, what kind of advice would you give yourself?
1: It's interesting. I used to feel this way about, there's a great book called replay where what's uh, one of my favorite fiction books. And the guy basically, I think he's like 50 something years old. He dies and he appears in his body when he was 18 years old and got to kind of live his life a second time. And like wow. all the different choices he made. And uh, and then it turns out he just, you not to give too much away. It's called replay. It happens again and again and again. So he lives his life many, 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 many times and wow. knowledge from each time and applies it to the next time and makes different life choices and so on. Um, and it was always kind of a fantasy of mine. Like, wouldn't it be great to go back and like know what you know now and relive your life again? Um, but uh, it's interesting how fast that changes once you have a family and the idea of like going back again and everything I would do would be to try to get to the life I have now exactly as possible because right, like, my family and is just so important to me, and I've had enough success along the way that we are comfortable and in a good place that um, we can live this this life that we have now. Uh, and so, I, man, I wouldn't I, w- I wouldn't change anything for the risk of losing what, what I have now. I'd be so much more risk-averse than I was, say, five or 10 years ago before I met my wife and before I had kids. Um,
0: yeah, I mean, that makes sense, right? Because uh, especially if I'm asking someone who's uh, schooled in physics about time travel, that uh, you would not want to necessarily mess up, you know, I mean, doc is right. You don't want to get yourself erased from that photo, you know, (laughs) and certainly the kids, right? And the kids and the the family, you know, Oh God, you love them so much. You would not want to do make any changes that would, that would affect that. So maybe, you know, propose a different way. If you could advise someone else starting at the beginning of their marketing career and and your, your future is safe. What would you tell them when they're just getting out of school?
1: Uh, So, you have to be very careful on these things because the bias for everybody is to say, Hey, do the thing that I did. Um, mm-hmm. and then you'll be successful. Um, and, uh, I'm a big believer that that success comes from some combination of, uh, being really smart or being smart, smarter, uh, the smarter you are on average, the more successful you're going to be, um, having the right skills, uh, having the right opportunities, yeah. putting in the right effort and, uh, and getting lucky and um oftentimes when we look at someone externally we we overattribute luck and when we look internally we underattribute luck um but it's it's there um luck without effort you can still be successful if you win the lottery but generally it's like hey you put in the effort you focus on getting the opportunities you develop the right skills you use the brain power you're given Um, and then you hope to get lucky and if if you don't get lucky, you'll probably still be reasonably successful, but if you want to have massive success, you have to combine that with luck. Um, and so, uh, um, don't focus on the luck part, focus on the parts you have and Hey, and your IQ is what it is. And so you're left with like three things you can control, which is how much effort you put in, how much, um, developing the right skills and, uh, and then setting yourself up for the right opportunities. Um, uh opportunities it's a matter of like really putting yourself in the right place and saying yes to the right stuff. Um, I think that these schools that the fancy schools and the Ivy league schools and the, the private high schools and so on are, um, less impactful than you'd think, but they set you up for potential opportunities mm, right. when combined with luck. Um, and th- they're, they're, are how you get, uh, uh ridiculously amounts of success. Yeah. Um, and so if you can do those things, if you can go to Harvard you should, um, Uh, go to the best school you can because the chances are it's going to help your opportunities. Um, And then in terms of skills, it's a matter of um, like the chances of you being the the LeBron James, of whatever it is that you're going to do is really, really low because there's only one, maybe there's two. Um, And uh, uh, being the very, very best at anything is, well, it is not going to happen for 99.999% of people. Um, And so what you got to start competing on is is, is the the unique set of skills that you're going to have. Um, and there you can start being really successful. If you can find a way to be the top 20% in five or six different complementary things, the chances are that no one else has that same set of five or six complementary things at that level of skill that you have. And now you're a monopoly on that particular set of skills that you have. Um, and so, uh, that's what I recommend people do is develop a set of skills that give them, um, uh, that, that, that combined is something fairly unique. Um, like being a, a developer is a, a fine job and you'll be absolutely fine unless you're a really, really, really ridiculously good developer though. And that caps out at a certain point. But if you're a yeah. developer who also knows UX and also knows digital marketing um, and also knows like product management um, now, all of a sudden you're like, wow, there's or now also knows data science, like, man, there aren't many people who know that have that combination and you're going to be able to do things that no one else can. Because the, the, you can always say, Hey, we can put five people together who have those five different skills and they can work together on a project. But there's a frictional cost that comes from like trying to work with other people that you don't get when you can internalize within one person. Mm. So I'm a big believer that if you want to be massively successful, it's number, Hey, number one is be LeBron James. But if you can't be LeBron James of whatever your field is, then find a way to have five different skills at at like at the top 20% range. And, um, That combination is going to set you up pretty well.
0: Yeah, yeah, I could see that. That that, the multiplication effect of that and being inside one person, there's less of that friction, talking in like interdepartmentally kind of thing. yeah that's fantastic. Hey, this has been this has been amazing. Where can people connect with you? They want to they want to get more of this, and I know they can. I've talked about this newsletter. Throw some links out at us all. You know, what kind of social sites do you want people to connect with you on? And then what are some URLs to go get some of your stuff?
1: Yeah, just hey, hey, go, go to my newsletter. It's on marketingbs.com or marketingbs.substack.com. Um, that, that's kind of the the hub of where I'm focused right now. Um, yeah. I, I, I'm not so popular that, that I don't respond to emails or if you comment on a post, um, I'm, I'm responding to all of them. So uh, if you want, if you really want to connect with me, that's the way to do it. Um, if you need, if you need help, hey, I, I mentioned earlier, if you need help finding a good paid search or good SEO person that can help you out on things, just yeah, let me know. Just You can, Email me through that those sites or or just send me a note through Twitter. Um, I'm easy to find. Um, Ed never, uh, never. I think is my my my, my Twitter handle. Um, so yeah, uh, uh, I, I'm not taking many 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 30 minute phone calls anymore, but um, I'm mm-hmm. happy to respond to an email.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And when people do reach out, they should definitely say, "Hey, I heard you in the podcast." Don't be one of those goofy, weird, gen strangers that's going to try to trick you into getting information. Just be like, Hey, heard you. I want to connect. I want to learn from you or, or definitely sign up for that newsletter. People like, I can't recommend it strongly enough. I'm literally reading, actually read the thing. You know, I don't read newsletters. and I read that one. So um, good stuff. Well, Ed, thank you so much for coming on here and sharing all this with us.
1: Great. Excited to be here. Casey. Thanks. you.
0: Yeah. And for those listening, if you learned something and I know you did, because I literally have two pages of notes front and back, then, Share this with someone else. Be a thought leader to one person, two people, 100, 10,000, a million people. Share this. Get that information out about what Ed was talking about. There's so many concepts here. Subscribe to that newsletter and hook it up. So last last thing, Ed, again, thank you so much. I've learned so much from you here today. I'm going to continue learning from you on that newsletter, and I appreciate it. Awesome. Thank you, sir. And everybody else, this has been the Hardcore Marketing Show. We will catch you all next time. All right. A big thank you to today's sponsors. Cheshire Impact, helping marketers and sales win, maximizing the use of Pardot and Salesforce. And a big thank you to Qualified.com, the number one live chat and chat bot platform for Salesforce and Pardot. Remember the giveaway. If you have Salesforce Pardot and you want a free copy of my book, Marketing Automation Unleashed, then you go over to qualify.com, engage in a chat, do a demo, and tell them that Casey sent you, and that book will be on its way to your door. All right. We'll see you all in the next one.